BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zone Media. Welcome back to It Could Happen Here. I am once again Robert Evans talking about it happening here. And in the case of today, because uh, we mean something different every time I introduce the show that way, uh, we're talking about the carceral state uh, and the worst reactive impulses of society coming for people who use drugs recreationally, who either have a problem or don't with them and simply don't want to go to prison for it. Uh, And specifically, we're talking about all of that within the context of the state of Oregon, where I reside. Uh, Because back in 2020, the state of Oregon passed a measure, the first in the nation, decriminalizing all simple possession uh, and use of street drugs. Um, So heroin, methamphetamine, Um, marijuana was already legal, but you know, everything is, you can't get arrested for simple possession of small amounts of stuff, right? That's the gist of the law. This passed by a pretty wide margin, uh, 58 point something percent of Oregonians voted for it. It was a ballot measure, not something the legislature pushed through. And it came as Oregon, like the rest of the country was kind of wrapped in the grip of an escalating drug crisis Uh, in 2020. And again, that's before the ballot measure passed. Oregon had the second highest rate of drug addiction in the country and ranked nearly last in access to treatment from 2019 to 2020. Opioid overdose deaths in Oregon increased by about 70 percent. So that makes the case that the problem 
prior to the ballot measure was pretty severe and that the current state of affairs, which was everything was illegal and you could go to jail for possession of, say, heroin, um, was not working out for anybody. However, in the years since the ballot measure passed, overdoses have continued to rise in Oregon. And miraculously, almost, the drug problem did not solve itself overnight. Now, we're going to be talking about some reasons for that, but now it is time for me to introduce our guest for the episode, Oregon Public Defender Grant Hartley. Grant, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Robert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, first off, I wanted to say from where you're standing as somebody who whose job is to represent Oregonians generally with the least resources who are charged with crimes, what were you seeing prior to 110 and what are you seeing after it? Well, I think prior to 110, we had um, you know, a population similar to what we have now, which is um, individuals who were struggling with houselessness, with housing instability, um, who were struggling with mental health. And as a result of many of those factors and others were um, coping with substances. And as a result of that, um, many of them would get wrapped into the legal system. And one of the issues with our legal system is that it is based on compulsion. And so when someone came into the system with a drug problem, our first reaction is to compel them into treatment, to force them into treatment, even though we know that that is not effective. And, uh, you know, at times it can be. And, and generally where you see the most success with it is where there's more hanging over the person's head, more leverage that the system has. And so, you know, somebody who has a substance use disorder and commits a robbery and is put on probation and they have a choice between going to prison and doing treatment, much more likely to engage um, in treatment. But when you have low-level possession where um, as a society we've deemed that it should not be punished by prison and frankly that should not be punished by jail, the problem is is that the only tool that the system has is jail. And so if somebody says, I'm not ready for treatment, the system says, well, we're going to put you in jail then. And then they go to jail. They're, what little they have is destabilized and they get out without any treatment. And as you mentioned in the opening, the biggest thing is just the incredible dearth of services in our community. There is not nearly enough um, outpatient treatment, but especially inpatient treatment um, and that's that's important for those houseless folks because you can't expect somebody to engage in outpatient treatment and then go back and sleep on the street at night and not use. So I yeah, that's that's I think the general gist of what it looked like. Yeah, I, I think that's all really important to keep in mind. And it's particularly important. And the reason we're doing this episode is because the last two years really is when it's escalated. We have seen this this increasing and very organized campaign against 110, and it's being pushed by the police who are angry that they're not able to arrest more people, particularly more homeless people. It's pushed by a lot of business owners who have convinced themselves that the reason why downtown Portland has had such a hard couple of years is because there's too many homeless people and they can go after them and get them off the street by having them arrested. This is all my opinion, not yours here. But there has been what, – what is not up for opinion is that there has been an escalating campaign to portray the measure as a disaster and to portray it as the center of particularly Portland's ills, but also more broadly the state of Oregon's ills. And I think there's a number of reasons why that's dishonest, which we'll talk about. But what we're, where, where that's kind of culminated now is this year there are two big pushes to get rid of 110. One of them is the push uh, by a ballot measure or two 
put out a ballot measure basically repealing 110 as it exists. And the other is a push by the legislature. And you kind of have separate plans pushed by the Dems and the Republicans to, in the case of the Republican plan, basically put things back to the way they were, if not more severe in terms of your ability to arrest people for possession. And the Democrats' plans is to recriminalize possession, but make it all basically the lowest level of misdemeanor. I don't think either of those are good plans, but I wanted to talk about kind of how you would characterize the backlash campaign against 110 and how much of it do you think is rooted in actual problems caused by the measure? No, I mean, it it has caused uh, most of the backlash. I I would agree with you that it is um, a lot of business communities, but it's also just, you know, average Portlanders because what they see is people on the streets struggling, using drugs in public. Um, because that is the only place that they can use drugs. And, you know, that's a problem of houselessness. They, people have to ask themselves, am I upset that I'm seeing somebody use drugs or am I upset that this person is sleeping on the street and needing to use the drugs in the street? And, and that is the same of business owners. You know, they call and complain that there's somebody on the stoop next to them um, using fentanyl. But is the issue that that person is using fentanyl or is the issue that that person is on the stoop next to them because there are no housing services in our city? And so really, Measure 110 is being scapegoated for two huge issues, which is the influx of synthetic heroin or fentanyl into our community and into every community around the nation. It is not restricted to to Portland or to Oregon because we decriminalized. It is everywhere. And then just the the houselessness crisis, which is tremendous in our city. It is, it is so bad. And people are essentially arguing that because we decriminalize drugs, more people are on the street. And I, I just don't think that there is any data to support that. Yeah. And I think part of the the reason why people suspect that is, is, again, because of how much dramatically worse the problem has gotten in recent years. But it's gotten worse everywhere. It's gotten worse in states like Oklahoma, where it is and has remained very illegal to possess this stuff. Um, Oregon is not the state with the worst death problem due to drugs per capita. And the states that are worse or are worse in various ways are all states in which it's criminalized. It's very frustrating to me when you look at like, well, we passed 110 in, in 2020 and these problems have gotten worse since. And it's like, well, but these are all problems that have gotten worse everywhere. And they're problems that are not driven by legality or at least the fact that it's no longer criminal to possess heroin. It's driven by the fact that we had a horrible pandemic that traumatized people. They lost loved ones. They lost jobs. They lost support. It's driven by the fact that the price of housing continues to rise. It's driven by inflation. It's driven by the fact that, I mean, to no small part, everybody's got brainworms from social media. That's not a zero percent factor in both people's anger at the houseless um, and in the fact that people are falling through the cracks. Like we have a million different things. I don't mean to list that as a comprehensive list of our problems either. Like drug addiction and drug like deaths due to overdoses are are caused by a variety of things. And one of the reasons why the death rate has been so high is that if you're addicted to heroin, you can't just stop doing heroin or the consequences are really, really horrible, worse than a lot of people are going to deal with. And so people keep using and they keep getting drugs that have been tainted with fentanyl. And it's hard not to die doing that. Like rich people can continue to test their kits. People who are, you know, have ha- had the benefit of not just education, um, but a stable home in which to do drugs and sort of the resources to know 
and to be able to like test their shit will test their shit. But most street level users don't have that kind of option. And I, it frustrates me that it's all getting scapegoated on this on this ballot measure. And so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about how they're attempting to go after 110, because it looks like right now the primary threat is legislative, in part because if they push another ballot measure, Oregonians get to vote and we'll see how they vote. But reversing it by 10, you know, almost a 10% lead is not an easy thing to do. And I kind of think Oregonians might surprise them in terms of not being willing to repeal this thing. Legislatively, we don't have really that kind of option against it. If they're able to get a kind of enough people behind an essential repeal and they'll frame it as, you know, we're just trying to tinker with the law to make it work better. But if if, if they can get enough people behind that, there's really nothing to do about it, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that I, in my opinion, was a, a strategy on the part of the opponents of 110 was... I mean, they, they have some very wealthy financial backers. Yes. And so, you know, it, it is not cheap to do a, um, a ballot measure. And, you know, they know that they can use that money to do media buys and to spread all of the misinformation that they've been spreading thus far. And I think that, frankly, there are people in the legislature that don't want to recriminalize, but feel that it is the lesser of two evils. And the unfortunate thing is, is that what we are essentially doing is delivering them a watered down version of that ballot measure. And and they were intentional in that ballot measure. I mean, they made it as bad as could be. It includes more than just recriminalization. Um, you know, it, it includes what is, what is commonly known as lend bias law in federal courts, which is essentially that people who deliver a substance that causes an overdose can be prosecuted essentially for murder. And um, it is a archaic understanding of how uh, the distribution of drugs works or the testing of drugs works. And and so they, they tried to make it as bad as possible in order for the legislature to essentially go, well, we don't want that to happen. And, you know, I, I would worry about a ballot measure. I mean, I, I agree with you that it's a big swing and I, I have faith in the, the, the voters of Oregon. But the fact is, is that the media has portrayed this very unfairly. You know, there was there was an article recently from the editorial board um, at the Oregonian, and they advocated for recriminalization. And in it, they cited that they want a data driven approach. There was not a piece of data in that article. It was all based on misinformation. And and the same is true. I mean, law enforcement are the worst about this. You know, they're they're constantly saying, oh, well, we just want tools so that we can confiscate the drugs and so that we can um, refer people to treatment, because we all know that's all police officers want to do. And yet, when you look at the e-citations that came out of Measure 110, those were meant as to be a referral tool. And that was one of the big mistakes of 110, is trying to use police officers as an ambassador for treatment. There is a culture in the police community that is, treats drugs as crime. Right. You are a criminal if you are a drug user. And I am not, you know, I'm not saying police are a monolith. I'm saying that is the culture that exists. And to expect them to change that overnight because the voters said they want to decriminalize was rather naive. And, and it's obvious because just here in Multnomah County, I think in, in uh, basically a 24 month period, they issued something like 900 e-citations or that was during a 30 month period, excuse me. And during a 24 month period. Um, in 2018 and 2019, they arrested more than 3,300 people on PCS. And that is 
what, nearly three times, more than three times as many people when they were able to put handcuffs on the people that they were meeting with. And, and, and Multnomah County was actually better than a most. You look at Washington County, 71 e-citations in 30 months, 71 tickets were given on this. And the ticket was supposed to be the tool by which somebody is referred to treatment. And so, you know, in some ways, Measure 110 had some serious structural and implementation issues, but that doesn't mean that we just go back to what the voters said. And one of the things that was the biggest issue in implementation is that a lot of funds were supposed to be redirected, I think, from marijuana sales was one of the places, to treatment facilities and to treatment options for people. Like these people who are supposed to be getting tickets instead of arrested for drug use were supposed to be being kind of pushed gently towards options. Um, But the actual money for those options took more than a year to start arriving. And it is still not at a very good clip. And there's a number of reasons for this, but like when when they frame it as like, well, we decriminalized stuff and all these problems kept getting worse. It's like, well, for one thing, they kept getting worse. They were getting worse when everything was illegal at a rapid pace. And number two, you didn't do what was supposed to be half of the measure, which was increasing the amount of care that people had access to. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to hear people talk about it now, I mean, during a legislative committee, I think there was one um, representative or senator who said, like, well, why why did it take so long for this to get implemented? It was 2020 and 2021. Like people are quickly forgetting how chaotic things yeah. were then. Yeah. And and the other thing is, is that when you put that money into the system, it takes a while to build beds, to hire people to do that. And what the opponents of 110 are doing, what the people seeking to recriminalize are doing, and they're really preying on our collective impatience. Yeah. You know, it's it's. They're saying, oh, well, you know, nobody is going and and, um, voluntarily engaging in treatment. Therefore, we must mandate it. And again, no one's voluntarily engaging in treatment because there's no treatment available to voluntarily engage in. And the idea that by making it criminal, we can somehow fix that is actually counterproductive because we're taking all those funds that we could be putting into additional services, into outreach, and we're instead putting it back into law enforcement or into probation or into the jails or into the state lab to Mm -hmm. test these drugs. And I want to continue off of that. And I want to talk, bring out some more data too. But first we have to go do a plug to ads. So here's ads, folks. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, 
features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. All right, we are back. Um, we're back, and I wanted to. I think there's two really good things to keep in mind when, uh, as an Oregonian, you're arguing with friends and family about 110, or if you're outside of the state and people bring it up because they saw like a three minute piece on Fox News where some smarmy asshole talked to a guy on the street. You know, you should be aware of a couple of things. Number one, when people talk about how it's not working, the thing that you should bring up is like, well, what about the 40 years or so of criminalization prior, like that led us to this point and at which the acceleration in deaths was highest. Um, and the other thing to bring up is, well, there's th- these claims that like public disorder, drug use, all this stuff, overdose deaths have gotten worse since 110. There's no evidence that that's the case, right? Uh, And there was, in fact, a study into this uh, by New York University that found no evidence of an association between decriminalization and fatal overdose rates in Oregon and Washington. And I want to I want to read a couple of quotes from that study. So first off, quote, publicly available calls for service data were used to compare Portland's use of the 911 system to Boise, Idaho, Sacramento, California, and Seattle, Washington, before and after 110. Uh, This was between 2018 and 2022. Public-initiated calls for service did not change after BM 110 was enacted in Portland. Portland's 911 calls for service data aligned with comparison cities for property, disorderly, and vice offenses with similar seasonally fluctuations. So for one thing, what you'll notice is that a lot of the articles about 110 started to hit both when we would have winter weather come in and summer weather come in. Both of those lead to surges in overdoses and drug use because the weather's shitty, right? People have less to do, less options. And especially if you're living outside, it's 100 during the day or it's 12. Maybe you want to do drugs more because you're uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Uh, So Again, I I think that it's important. There's this study from New York University on 110 and, and, you know, its lack of impact on this stuff. That shouldn't be the final word on this. I'm certain there will be more studies, but that is a word on this and they simply have no data. Well, the, on their the, side of things. You know, there's a, there's another study as well. I mean, the, we you know, there's a, a study out of Portland State University. Um, and and it's interesting. It was a follow-up study. The, the full report has not been released yet, but they did release some of their key findings. And um, it was in the, the first year, PSU met with officers and interviewed them about their perceptions of 110 and how it was going. 
as you might imagine, officers didn't think it was going well. And they said, oh, well, violent crime has increased and property crime has increased and overdoses are, are increasing all because of 110. And what this report found is that is not true. There was an uptick in property crime, but mm -hmm. we cannot say that that has been a result yeah. of 110 for years. You, you, you need a lot of data in order to look at that. And so, um, you know, this idea, and, and I mean, the ultimate finding of that study was that it is too early to recriminalize it based on the data. It is too early to recriminalize. And so, um, but again, you know, I, I think that instead what we are relying on is people's fear and what people see in the street. And, you know, I, I think it's also this idea. I mean, I, the reason we are having this discussion, in my opinion, is two things. One is public use. Right? individuals using on the street. It's in people's faces. Nobody really cares when someone is in the warmth of their own home using fentanyl. It's when they're on the street. Or, or I should note when someone's in the White House using fentanyl, because it just came out that the president and high staff were prescribed fentanyl and ketamine in the White House when Trump was in office. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, and, and, but no one, no one really cares about that. It's, it's when it's in your face that people care. And the other one is the perception that crime is, you know, that Again, a lot of crime is caused by drug use, right? There is sure. an underlying uh, association there. But the idea of criminalizing drugs because of that is the idea that you can somehow arrest somebody, compel them into treatment, and therefore prevent crimes. Yeah. that that I mean, that's like the precog, the sci-fi sort of things. It's, it is a backward system. No, and, and we actually know what will stop the drug-related crimes, which are mostly theft, right? Yeah. Um, and one of the things that will, and they've seen this, I believe it's the Netherlands, that you if you're a heroin addict, the government will give you free heroin. You have to take it at a center, like you go in, you sign a thing, and you get your dose, and you take it there. That saves them money based on doing nothing. Because when they do nothing, people break into houses and cars, et cetera, and boats, because it's it's the Netherlands, um, <laughs> in order to steal shit so that they can not get dope sick. And just giving the dope to them winds up costing a lot less per addict. Well, the other thing that gets people clean or that stops people from committing crimes is housing, is providing them a roof over their head. I mean, when people are, even, even if they're not on the street, if they are housing unstable, they're trying to make a living and it is not easy to do so with whether it's a felony record or your you know your upbringing or whatever reason has held you back if if they have housing i mean there there are numerous studies that show that when you put somebody in housing their likelihood of using drugs drops their likelihood of committing crimes drops and yet we are focused on this recriminalization rather than trying to house these individuals yeah and it's, you know, when you talk about this, when you talk about decriminalization, and in Oregon's context, there's a good reason for this. People talk about Portugal. Portugal, Spain also did this, both Portugal and Spain, uh, and I believe Portugal was first, decriminalized simple possession and use. Um, quite a while ago. It's been that way in Portugal for, I think, like 20 years. Like, it, they have a significant amount of data on it, right? And Oregonians, the people who were pushing for 110, cited it specifically as like a reason why this was worthwhile. There was recently, I think last year, some state officials and whatnot went to Portugal to look into the system. And so as a result, you've seen like attacks on the Portuguese uh, drug system, including there was a recent Washington Post article about how well, Portugal's starting to regret it. They're going to recriminalize maybe. And the reality of the situation is that there was has been a recent surge in illicit drug use in Portugal from 7.8% in 2001 to 12.8% in 2022. That is an increase, 
It's still below the average in most of Western Europe. It's lower than France and Italy. I believe it's lower than the UK. It's lower than like most of Western Europe. And I, I just kind of pointing out the fact that Portugal is also dealing with an increase in drug use. Again, saying that that's because of the culture of decriminalization seems silly when there have been corresponding surges everywhere where it's illegal. But beyond that, it ignores the fact that there have been really significant benefits that we do know are benefits of decriminalization because of how long we've been looking at it. From 2000 to 2008, prison populations in Portugal fell by almost 17%. Overdose rates dropped because in part they funded rehabilitation, which Oregon still has not really done. Uh, there was no surge in use. And in fact, less people seem to die when the system changed, right? What has increased is some drug-related debris, uh, particularly most of the surges have been in the last, literally the last couple of years, which again, makes me think it is tied to the global trends that have made a lot of people more miserable and living in a more difficult situation and at more risk of drug addiction. What happens in Portugal politically? Hard to say, but overall, decriminalization, we have a lot of data for, seems to have largely been a success. Um, and if that's kind of what we were to see in Oregon with decriminalization, I would be happy, even if there's more mess on the streets, although I don't think that that's inevitable. And this gets us to what I think is kind of the most dangerous point that the opposition, the people who want to recriminalize make. And it's dangerous because it seems like they have a good point, which is People shouldn't be people with families, just regular people should not have to see folks using hard drugs on the street as they walk around town. And I agree. It is not reasonable to expect people to walk with their kids to school past somebody shooting up heroin or smoking crack. It's it's fine. And not you're not you're not like a uh, uh, some sort of like narc or party pooper if you don't want your kids to see that. But that's already illegal. Because it's yeah. like it's illegal to drink a beer on the street in Portland. The problem is not that the cops can't do anything about it. It's that, again, they're choosing not to do anything about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and, and again, it, it is the issue of we have people living on the streets, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it is. Yeah, I, I completely agree that people shouldn't have to walk past that. But maybe that is a, an, an opportunity to talk to their child about the need to make sure that people have a safe place to live. And also, yeah. I mean, it's also, you know, if we had safe use locations, you wouldn't see nearly as much of that. And frankly, the system would have a better argument yes. for punishing yes. um, public use if we had safe use areas because we have put so many people on the street. Yes. Somebody who has no place to be and is desperate and is addicted using in a place where you can see them is understandable. Somebody who has options for places to be and is choosing to do it in front of people, that's a bit of a different case. And again, I also want to just really, because I've, I've encountered this in arguments about 110 with people, um, it did not make it legal to do drugs in public. That remains all. illegal. It's illegal to drink a beer in public. Absolutely, yeah. Pub public use is... I mean, but again, these these are sort of the narratives that are being perpetuated by, and and it a lot of it is is law enforcement, and and honestly, my take on it is that law enforcement doesn't really care about recriminalizing possession. They don't. What they want is they want the ability to search people. What yep. what what that gives them is it gives them the right to say, hey. I have probable cause to believe that you have drugs on you. Therefore, I'm going to search you. I'm going to search your car. I'm going to, you know, search your house, right? It, it gives them that ability. And they, 
you know, many of them will be very forthright about that. And the the biggest infringements on our personal privacy, on our Fourth Amendment rights, on our protected privacy interests has always been drugs. It has always been the criminalization of drugs has eroded our our privacy interests. And um and that is that's what's really at play here. Because I don't I don't think the officers I mean, and this is, again, not a monolith. I'm saying I don't think in general law enforcement really um, is that concerned with, you know, getting individuals off the street and into treatment. If that were the case, we would have seen far more of those e-citations. Well, you know, we would see the officers doing there. There is a statute that allows them to transport people to detox. Right. We don't see that that often because really what is at issue here is the ability to search people based on probable cause that they possess drugs. Yeah. Yeah. And we will we will talk about what people can do if they want to stop the recriminalization of drugs in Oregon. But first, here's some more ads. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And we're back. So... 
Grant, kind of the question I am left with at the end of this here um, is what do we do to fight back against this? What is actually, what is going, what are the options people have? Obviously the thing that first occurs to me that is most accessible is make a fuss to your elected leaders. So you know that this is something you'll think about come voting season. But um, first off, how would people do that? I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, figure out who your legislator is, um, you know, write to them, call them, let them know that, you know, you want to see, you know, realistic fixes to this. You want to see investment in public health, in outreach through peer navigators and case managers that you don't want to see us return to the same war on drugs that has failed. Yeah, it's it's hard. I will say if you're looking to do research outside of like a lot of a lot of local news, this is a hard time for local news. Well, good local reporting gets done in a number of places, including Oregon. Also, a lot of smaller local news agencies are very much in the pocket of the people who help to fund them, which is some of the people funding the attempt to repeal. So if one of the better articles that has been written recently um, was in The New Yorker. It is great. Uh, yeah, there's a. I'm, I'm pulling it up right now. Uh, there's a great New Yorker piece, uh, A New Drug War in Oregon, um, that was published just this month. Probably the best major outlet piece I've seen on it. And yeah, it's it's it talks a lot about the stabbing wagon, which is um, a kind of independent, although they've now should at some point theoretically be getting a significant amount of funding. But like they provide drug users, not just with, um, you know, naloxone or, or Narcan, um, but with uh, safe use materials like syringes and stuff that are clean. Um, this is down in the south of Oregon in a place called Medford, which has both one of Oregon's worst drug problems and also is a much more conservative area. So obviously these people are very controversial. And I will say, you know, one of the things this article does well is they get at, even within people who are supportive of 110, the conflict between kind of traditional Absolutely. addiction recovery resources and organizations and some of these new, often these new organizations are either started by or run by people who have or do currently deal with addiction. Um, and I, I think covering that conflict is valuable. There's some stuff that frustrates me about about it. And this is, I think there's a lot of negativity towards Stab and Wagon and its founder that's unfair. I also think some of the things that she has said about traditional addiction recovery resources are very unfair from her point of view. And I, I think I think when I look at the problem, the only comprehensive solution is multiple options for different kinds of people. Because I know a lot of people who have dealt with addiction and recovered, and no two of them did it the same way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I think that, you know, both of those are necessary, right? Harm. I, what, what I always say is that the, the beauty of harm reduction is that not only does it ensure that somebody survives long enough to make it to heart, uh, to um, recovery, yep. but, it, but it also builds a relationship with that person. It builds a relationship of trust so that you can have a conversation about the need for recovery. You know, as, as a public defender, um, I don't get the benefit of the prosecutor or the court to or probation to wield power and to make my client do what um, they should do because I'm holding power over them. I, I have to build trust, right? I, I have to have a relationship of trust with them and I have to find out what motivates that individual and and try to utilize that to, in, to encourage positive steps, right? And, and that's true of our, our case managers and social workers that work with us. And that's that's what the system doesn't have, right? The system is just trying to use the threat of incarceration in order to get individuals who are not ready 
um, for recovery to engage in recovery. And that that's detrimental. I mean, yeah. we, we, we need, we need both harm reduction and we need traditional treatment. We need culturally competent treatment. You know, there needs to be wraparound services. And that's one of my concerns here is that, you know, we know that the criminal legal system didn't work. When 110 passed, we had um, a drug court that dealt with low level possession and its graduation rate was around 17%. Yeah. So 17% of people and graduation meant 90 days of sobriety. And that was 17% of people. That other 83%, if they fail at a program, again, the only tool the system has is jail. And so all they did was did not hook them up with services and instead eventually punish them for not being ready for treatment. And th- that is not how we get people into recovery. Yeah. I, I think that that's a really good point. When I when I talk about both how people can help if a loved one is starting to deal with drug addiction and when someone if someone you love is getting into a cult or getting pulled into conspiracy theories, it's actually the same advice. Yeah. I had a friend come to me recently because a loved one of theirs was starting to to kind of talk about some really concerning conspiracy theory stuff, right? Um, and they were like, what do I do? say against this? How do I argue against it? And my, my answer was like, well, you don't really. You you make it clear, like, hey, I don't really believe this. I don't find this compelling. But like, you know, I love you, and I'm always here to listen if you want to talk about this kind of stuff or you want to talk about whatever. And that is the same if someone's starting to get pulled into a cult or if they're dealing with drugs. Because as you noted, if they have a pathway out, and they're not going to have to. It's not this kind of thing where you've been yelling at them and may, and then like they have to come to you with their head, tail between their legs and like, I was wrong. I fucked up. That's a barrier. If like, well, this this person cares about me and is always going to be like willing to, you know, talk with me like no matter what. Well, then that's less of a barrier Then you're not. You haven't built a wall that they have to get through. They can just come to you when they're like, I need help. Exactly. I mean, it's based in relationships. And and I mean, that's one of the issues, right, is that too many people, um, not just in Portland, but everywhere, see individuals on the street and assume the worst and see them as the other. They don't see them as part of the community. And so they're more than fine with a system locking them up because of their addiction. And, you know, we all need to recognize that, you know, it that falling into that lifestyle, you know, whether, whether it is because of, you know, where you were raised, how you were raised, um, you know, whether you got addicted to pills because your doctor prescribed them, there's a lot of reasons, whether you had childhood trauma, there's a lot of reasons why people get an addiction. And, you know, to simply assume that somebody, because they're addicted to drugs is a criminal, a bad person, um, you know, it, it is making them the other. Yeah. And and it's so much easier to be punitive when you're just seeing that person as the other. Yeah. And I, I did want to note if people are looking for resources online, both about 110 and how they can help in the fight to stop it from getting repealed, um, you can go to HJRA, the uh, Health Justice Recovery Alliance. Um, they have – you can sign up to get information from them. They have community resources um, they have like updates on what's going on. I think you can find through them a uh, a way to like automatically kind of send a, a form message to your elected leaders. So just Google um, Health Justice Recovery Alliance Oregon or Health Justice Recovery Alliance 110, and that will take you there. They've they've got a lot of stuff collected there, both resources if you're having arguments with with people about this and 
information on how you can help at least try to do something. Yeah. And I will say also the ACLU has been very active in this as well. And, um, you know, they have an action plan on their website um, that, you know, tells you some of the things that you can do in this. And, and, you know, like I said, I mean, I, I, I think obviously contacting your legislators, we're, we haven't even started the legislation or the legislative session yet. Um, and so there is still room to change this and yeah. to at least make it less bad. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it's these days, sometimes it feels like less bad is yep. the, is the goal that we need to strive for. It's harm reduction again. Like exactly. That's, that's yes. how I tend to look at the legislative side of things. Um, well, everybody, that's going to do it for us here at It Could Happen Here. Grant, thank you so much. Should you have anything you wanted to plug or direct listeners towards before we roll out here? Um, I mean, I think, again, it's just, um, you know, go to the ACLU website, go to HJRA's website, um, get involved. But but more than just that, um, no matter what happens during this legislative session, you know, remember that all of these folks on the street are people and they need assistance and, um, you know, and they, they need help and continue or consider, you know, contributing to a, um, a recovery organization or volunteering to go out into the community. Um, you know, if you have lived experience with addiction, consider becoming a peer. It, it is so impactful to have individuals who have struggled with substance use, go out in the community and engage individuals who are currently struggling with it. And that is the best trust building. That is the best way to get people into recovery, not through handcuffs and jails. Thank you very much, Grant. I couldn't agree more. All right, everybody. That's it for us today. We'll be back tomorrow with more of it happening here. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club.